Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be part of the conversation. How do you find out if locums is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. Many of us are employed docs and feel the grind of having to meet metrics, follow corporate guidelines, sometimes make us feel like they're limiting our decision-making capabilities, or in some cases, just feel like we are having the life sucked out of us one prior authorization at a time. So over and over, I see docs encouraging other docs to check out concierge medicine or direct primary care. And so I'm actually really excited to have Dr. Rebecca Bernard here with us today to tell us about how she got into direct primary care and maybe some of the obstacles that she's had to overcome one problem at a time. So maybe the rest of us can avoid it. So welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me, Tammy. When you started out in practice, were you traditional, employed, uh, primary care physician, or did you go directly into DPC? Well, actually, I was a National Health Service Corps scholar, which meant that I had to spend some time working in an underserved environment to repay my medical school loans. And it was interesting because when I got awarded the scholarship, I asked, you know, will there be a lot of opportunities? Will I have a lot of flexibility? And they said, oh, yeah, there are jobs all across the state. I'm a Floridian. I wanted to stay here in Florida. And then when the time came, there were exactly three options. So when I looked at those choices, I interviewed at all three places and I picked the one that seemed the less least challenging because they were all very remote, very rural. And I selected a job in Immokalee which is 45 minutes from any rural town, a migrant clinic site. And I was there for four years. And then I actually did another two years because of some taxes that they started doing for the National Health Service Corps scholar, Scholarship, which they did away with later. But during my years, I had to pay those taxes. So I ended up actually doing six years. And then after I spent my six years in a federally qualified health center, I decided I wanted to try something different. So I like to joke that I went to the dark side, meaning that I went from, you know, rural underserved care to basically working for a for-profit hospital system with, you know, really affluent patients. And it was the complete opposite. But what I learned was that even though the patient population was different, I had the same exact challenges when it came to being owned by uh, managers and um, basically a corporate environment. And so after doing that for five years, I decided to move and join a, an urgent care that was hiring for primary care doctor. That was great. And I loved it until they went out of business. 
And so right around that time, I said, you know what, let's try something completely different. I had been hearing and reading about direct primary care for years. and I loved the idea, but I was always a little too scared to do it. But since I didn't have a job, it's the first time in my life I was unemployed. I said, well, if there's ever a time, it's now. And so I decided to open my practice. And so that was now seven years ago. Did you have this big nest egg to live on while you were trying to get this going or that had to have been so frightening to do something so different like that? Yeah, you know, I did. I was in a good shape because I had my student loans paid off, right? I had done the job in Immokalee for six years, so I had no student loans and I had been working and making a very nice living for some years. So yeah, I had a little money in my pocket and I knew that I could carry myself for at least a year, if not longer. So I just decided, you know what, let's try it for one year. At the one-year point, if it's not financially successful, no problem. I'll go get another job. I'm a woman family doctor. I can find a job anywhere. That was kind of what I told myself. But fortunately, within certainly well before that year mark, the practice was holding, carrying itself, making good money. And in fact, now I would say I probably make you know, as much or even possibly more than I can make just working in traditional private practice. That's fantastic. I have so many questions. I'm not sure where to start. (laughs) It's a a big topic. Usually people talk to me about it. You know, there's always so many questions. I actually made a little PowerPoint video that you can see on my website, which is RebeccaBernard.com. And it just basically takes you through like what I did when I started my practice. And I actually started my practice really fast because I lost my job on June 13th and I opened my new practice on July 7th. Oh and my gosh. I was able to open it so fast was partly because I had been just reading about DPC for years, but also because it's not rocket science. You know, doing a d- direct care practice, all you really need is you, uh, maybe a stethoscope. I mean, you don't need a <laughs> small place to work. It's all about low overhead. So it's one of those things that seems a little daunting when you just start thinking like opening a practice. But because direct care removes insurance and third party payers, It's just way, way simpler than opening a traditional practice. You don't have to worry about credentialing. You don't have to worry about hiring a huge team of billers and coders. You know, you don't even, a lot of DPC doctors don't have any staff. They do what they call a micro practice. Now, for me, I really like having staff because I don't want to do a lot of stuff myself. So I started with a staff member from day one. And that's probably one of the hardest parts is finding who that person will be. You know, when when you're really trying to figure out, out about starting a D, DPC practice, you just need a location. And the smaller, the better. I just found I looked for the cheapest rent in an area around where I live. I had to move a little farther away from where I wanted to go just because the rents were a lot different in one zip code to another. And I actually rented an executive suite, which was medically zoned. So it was super cheap. My rent when I first started was just $1,000 a month. I pay more now because I have more space, but you don't need a lot of space when you're starting, just something very little. And then I had one staff member and I got all of my equipment and everything that I have from Craigslist pretty much. And in fact, I like to say that my EKG machine is almost as old as I am, but (laughs) it's the best EKG machine I've ever owned. It's still ticking and, and working great. So you can do a lot of direct care on a budget. And I think that's really important because for me, I've always had a heart for wanting to do underserved care and take care of patients that don't have a lot of money. So the idea of doing concierge, there's nothing wrong with that. But 
it wasn't something that was easy for me to think about doing just because of the way that I think about practicing medicine. I love being able to offer high quality primary care to people without millions of dollars. So direct care actually lets you act like a concierge doctor, but you can also provide that same level of care that you would for a millionaire to a person that works, you know, cleaning houses or as a roofer or a tiler, you know, hardworking people. A lot of times they can't afford health insurance. Our state, I'm in Florida, which did not expand Medicaid. So we have a very large number of people that kind of are in a gap where they are, they make too much for Medicaid, but they cannot afford the premiums for health insurance because they are just so high, even on the exchange. How did you get the word out that you now have this practice and people can come in and get the care that they need without insurance? How do you even get the word out to those people that need you? Yeah, in an ideal world, if I had known that my practice where I was working at was going to kind of dissolve, I would have been prepping and letting people know ahead of time and telling them, explaining to them about the model. And some doctors that convert their practice, they do that very successfully. It's always a little hard, though, I'll just say, because you never know who of your patients are going to want to come with you to your new practice and who is going to say, what do you mean I got to pay cash for you? That's crazy. And it's kind of emotional. And in fact, you know, I remember for me, there were people that I thought, oh, for sure, they're going to join my practice. I'm not charging that much. And, you know, maybe I did something that, you know, had a really big impact on their life. And some of those people did not think that they wanted, you know, at the time, my, my charges were $60 a month. And they said, well, no, I have insurance. I'm going to go somewhere else. And then there were people that I didn't even think that I was that important to that wrote me a check for the whole year and said, sign me up. I want to be your patient. Uh, I want to stay as your patient. So it's kind of weird. Like, I guess what you learn is who really values what you have to offer. Because when you're doing direct care, you know, I would say most patients can afford direct care membership. The average is about $77 a month. You know, there are definitely going to be some people that that's going to be too much for. But a lot of for cable bills and streaming services and things like that. But there are some people that are just going to say, well, I don't want to pay money. I, if I can use my insurance, I'll just go to the big box clinic or something like that. So it's really interesting just to see how that plays out. Now, in my case, because everything happened so fast, I wasn't able to make a really smooth transition. All I could really do was uh, I did get patient addresses and I mailed them all a nice letter trying to explain the model. A lot of people were really upset with me because they felt like I just disappeared, even though I had no control over any of that. And so that was also emotionally hard. Um, I was fortunate to get the newspaper to, I sent some press releases and the local newspaper did run an article talking about the model. So that was a really big win for me because I learned that advertising in traditional media like newspapers and magazines is phenomenally expensive. And I did try a couple of different marketing uh, type of tool uh, pr procedures with uh, traditional media, but I never really found it to be that helpful for the money that you spent. The number one way that I got patients, of course, it's always word of mouth, but using social media for that word of mouth is really, really powerful. So I created a Facebook page for my business. And one of the first things that I did was just get people to like my page. So I actually paid to boost the page just to get people to find it and then started boosting posts. And it's not expensive. Usually I would spend, you know, maybe up to $50 a month, not a lot of money. But it was amazing how quickly, because if you get enough people sharing, then it's just organic and you don't pay for it. And then, you know, find like the local moms groups, find the local community groups and talk about what you're offering. 
that was really a really great way to get the word out. And of course, I went to all the different pharmacies in my area, gave my cards out. I went to different practices of specialists to let them know what I was doing. So just really sharing it with your community and explaining the model. You really want to have an elevator pitch because, you know, people are starting to hear and understand about DPC now, but not everybody knows about it. So being able to tell them, you know, really quickly what it is and why it might make sense for them to pay out of pocket, especially if they have health insurance. And for someone that does have health insurance, they can still submit that bill and get paid back on the back end, correct? Not really, because the difference is that the membership is so inexpensive that what you're actually not going to be in network, first of all. So most insurance companies are going to, if they're going to reimburse, they're not going to reimburse. They're going to reimburse at an out-of-network rate. And so it ends up being just such a small amount of money. And you're not really billing for a visit. You're just, it's a monthly membership. So and and so for Medicare, for example, I'm opted out of Medicare. They absolutely cannot submit their um, their billing because Medicare doesn't allow that when you're opted out. Some insurances might, but honestly, the headache that people would go through to get the reimbursement, which would be so little money, just honestly doesn't make a lot of sense. So what I usually tell my patients is if you have insurance, that's great. And we can use that for sending out your labs. Although I will tell you that I have patients with insurance that find It's cheaper just to use our low-cost lab than it is for them to run it through their insurance if they have a deductible or something like that. But I tell them, you know, you can use your insurance for your medicines. And same thing, sometimes we have an in-house dispensary. Sometimes I can sell it at the wholesale price less expensively than even their insurance copay. But, you know, if they're on a brand name drug, of course, that's a different story. And I tell them, if you need to see a specialist, if you need to go to the hospital, that's really what your insurance is for primary care. You really don't need it because we can keep everything really inexpensive and take care of you here without even needing to pull out your insurance card. It's amazing. Now, do you contract with the local labs, the local imaging centers, that kind of thing to try and get your patients the care that they need that's still not breaking the bank? Yeah, that's exactly what we do. We have what's called client billing through LabCorp and Quest. And if you have other local labs, you can work with them. And what they do is they give you a special price for the lab tests and they just submit a bill to you as the client and you submit the bill for the individual labs to the patient. And what ends up happening is you can get the labs at just a fraction of the price that you usually see when you get traditional billing for labs. So for example, CBC or complete blood count is about $3.50. Thyroid TSH is $4.50. So we're talking about really low amounts. So once a month, LabCorp request, I work with both of them. They send me a bill. It's itemized. I can see, and then I send, I pay them directly. So they offer those prices because just imagine how much money they're saving uh, on not having to track down 50 individual patients are just getting me to pay the bill. So I guess their overhead cuts their overhead quite a bit by doing client billing. With radiology centers, what we've done is we've just reached out to our local radiology centers, asked them to give us competitive pricing and our patients can pay cash for it. And they patients don't pay me, they pay the radiology center directly, but we've gotten prices down so low. Things like an MRI of a joint, let's say for $250. CAT scan of the abdomen with contrast, like $300. So we're talking about significantly decreased prices than you would even expect. And that's usually because you're going with outpatient centers. Um, I always try really hard to find 
smaller organizations, mom and pop or physician owned. It's getting a little bit harder nowadays now that we have more and more corporations involved in healthcare. So, but I'm always seeking out trying to find physician owned and operated um, healthcare. It just tends to always be more cost effective. And in my opinion, it's almost always better. What do your typical appointments look like? I assume you're not on the hamster wheel where you've got someone double and triple booked every five minutes. Thank God those days are gone. <laughs> I think back to the days where I would see 30 patients a day and have be triple and quadruple booked and running from room to room with four different staff members basically going after me at me saying, do this, 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 and this. And, you know, really what they call, you know, team-based care. But ultimately, the team is only as strong as its weakest link. And really, you're, that's a, still a lot of responsibility. You can have a lot of team members, but if somebody drops the ball, that's on you as the physician. So that's pretty scary. I really appreciate the fact that now I have 30-minute visits with my patients. Now, I, a lot of DPC doctors like to do longer visits. I have talked to people that do an hour and an hour and a half even. And when I hear that, it actually makes me kind of tired because I always say, I don't think that people really want to sit with me for longer than 30 minutes because it's, it's, a lot. it's a lot. And to me, it's more like about the relationship. So I'm going to see somebody for 30 minutes today, and then I might bring them back in a week or two or three, and then we'll have another 30 minutes. And then we might meet again in another month and another 30 minutes. So I like the idea for me, you know, take me in small doses. You get to, you know, I'll learn everything as much as I can about you. Maybe we'll start order some labs, we'll bring you back to follow up, we'll bring you back, and then over time start spacing out those appointments. But I just kind of feel like you can get a lot done in 30 minutes if you're focused. And of course, if we need to take longer, we always can do that if we're having you know some issues that we need to talk more about. But that's what I do. And um, I basically have adapted my schedule a lot over time. Like when I first started, I was working Monday through Friday, and I would start at like 8.30, and I'd have a late appointments at 5.30. And as I've been doing this longer and I'm enjoying more free time, I've kind of cut that back so that I can do other things that I'm interested in. And I'll tell you, that's the biggest beauty of direct primary care is that you can personalize it to what you want. Obviously, you have to take care of your patients. So you just figure out, you know, how can I provide care for most of my patients reasonably, a reasonable schedule, and then also allow time for myself. And that means that maybe, you know, for me, I started out doing it this way. And then I said, Let me try doing this. And I try it. And if it works, I keep doing it. And if it doesn't work, I try something else. But I can do that. I get to make those decisions, not a middle manager. It sounds amazing. It, it sounds like it would be better for the patient. They're not limited to three minutes in the room with you while you're trying to type your note. And they can only talk about one thing. You know, maybe they have 30 minutes and you can talk about whatever's going on in their life. It sounds better for you from a just perspective that you can actually enjoy medicine and it might be exactly what you want it to be instead of what someone else wants it to be for you. Can specialists do this type of care as well? Or do you see many specialists that have kind of branched out into this direct model? Yeah, I think they absolutely can. And I think we're seeing that more and more. The cognitive specialties, as I like to call them, you know, the endocrinology, rheumatology, neurology, ones that are not so dependent on expensive equipment and maybe hospital infrastructure, they're probably going to have the easiest time at doing a direct care model. However, I am seeing some surgical colleagues of mine get into this 
where if they have a surgical center or um, they have a contract with a surgical center, there's a friend that just opened a GI practice that is going to be able to do the, a direct care model. You know, we have places like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, which is a cash only surgery center. And they basically, I've actually sent my patients here from Florida all the way up to Oklahoma because they can go on the Surgery Center of Oklahoma's website and find out exactly how much their surgery is going to cost. And it's usually a fraction of what it would cost when you go through a hospital system. So in my case with one of my patients, I had a patient that was not from this country. He was here legally, but he um, didn't have health insurance and couldn't qualify for any. And he was having this terrible hemorrhoid bleeding to the point where he was hospitalized repeatedly for blood transfusions. And he was quoted $20,000 to have surgery because it required inpatient. And he flew up to Oklahoma and they did his surgery for $5,000 and he was able to be completely cured of that condition. So we have also had patients that have gone. We have a similar arrangement in a county north of us that they're doing cash-based surgery. We had a patient that needed his gallbladder out. And he was able to also about $5,000 get that taken care of. So there are ways to make this work. It does require effort and coordinating with other people. But I'm hoping that more and more specialists and surgeons and and all physicians will look into this as an option because really, ultimately, a lot of times it, it ends up costing less than if you go through traditional insurance. That's amazing. That's really amazing. What kind of patient panel do you have to have to make this financially viable for you? So the math is really easy. You just take the total number of patients that you might want to see and multiply that by the amount of dollars that you want to charge the patient and then subtract what your overhead is. So if you want to see fewer patients, you might have to charge more on that dollar amount or have a lower overhead. Or if you want to have a a really fancy office, you might need to have more patients. So those are the three variables. It's number of patients, dollars per month, and overhead. So the average direct primary care practice is about 600 patients is considered a full panel. But I know many of my colleagues that have a smaller practice where they have 200 or 300 patients. And then I know other doctors that have 800 to 1,000. I've had as many as about 850. That was when I had an associate that was with me. And then when she left, I just kept on the panel and it was pretty busy. It was manageable. Now I've kind of let that dwindle down. I'm at about 600 and I honestly do not work that hard. I feel very guilty sometimes. I think, gosh, I could be seeing a lot more patients and being quite a bit busier. But that's sort of the internal struggle where it's always like finding that balance between am I being as good a doctor as I can be and giving as much as I can to the community versus am I enjoying my life and doing fun things that I want to do too. So that's kind of, I think that's always going to be a universal struggle for me and probably a lot of my colleagues out there. Or do you have like a really young population or an older population? What have you kind of gravitated towards? My patient population, because of the area that I'm in, which is a bit more of a blue collar area, averages the age about 57 years old. I'm sorry, not 47 years old. And so it's a working, mostly working people. I have about 25% Medicare age, though, because again, I'm in Southwest Florida. So we do have a lot of Medicare patients. But before I was in direct care, my Medicare practice was probably. 70% of my practice just because of the nature of how, what our um, demographics are here. So it's though, and I got to tell you, like in the past, 
it was really hard to having so many Medicare patients because of the amount of work you have to do to report things to Medicare. And are you checking all the boxes and dotting all the I's? And now that I don't have to do that, I don't have to do any kind of special reporting or hire a team of people. I actually find my Medicare patients to be my favorite because usually they're very invested in their health and they know what they're supposed to do. And now we just spend our time talking and making sure that we're optimizing their health instead of me making sure and worrying that I maybe I haven't, you know, dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's for just for reporting purposes or, you know, this quote, meaningful use sort of stuff. It's nice. I love that I can see a full spectrum. I do see kids, although not as many kids as maybe some other people do. But that's just, again, the demographics that we have here. But it's fairly a broad spectrum across across family medicine. For patients that want coverage for major medical care like hospitalization, is there somewhere they can go to get that at a reasonable price? That's the dream. You know, right now I'm doing a short-term non-ACA compliant plan for myself. Because looking at if you go to healthcare.gov and you get the cheapest plan bronze or whatever it is, when I looked at that for my husband and I, it was going to be over $2,000 a month. And that was a high deductible plan that I really had no hope to you know, plan not to use at all unless something really scary happened. So I was able to purchase a, a, through the Florida Medical Association. They had a, a deal where you could do this up to 36 month short-term non-ACA compliant plan, and it's only $300 a month. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm on year two of three. After that third year, I'm going to have to start considering my options. I do know people, and I have in the past done health sharing uh, services like uh, Liberty or Samaritan. There's a number of them. Um, They're not perfect. They don't cover certain things, but that's an option. But my dream and my hope politically is that there will be some sort of true catastrophic health insurance plan that could be reasonably priced so that patients could use a direct care service for primary care, but have the peace of mind of knowing if, God forbid, they got a a serious disease, cancer, or something like that, that they would, or hospitalization, that they would be covered. Right now, it's pretty tough. It seems like this is such a better way and a more affordable way for patients to get their care. I hope you're right. I hope someone's paying attention in Congress and says, hey, this really makes sense financially, but yeah, because you know, need Tam, that backup. What, what my mentor, my friend Lee Gross, and he's the uh, doctor that opened a DPC practice many years before me. He's actually somebody I was reading about years before I opened my practice. But he always likes to say that we should consider health insurance the same way we consider homeowners insurance. You don't put in a claim to your homeowner's insurance when you blow a light bulb. And the same way, when you go into your primary care doctor for a checkup or blood pressure management, you know, why are we putting in claims for that? Instead, we put in a homeowner's claim when, you know, a hurricane hits, when it's catastrophic. And so if we imagine what as expensive as homeowners is now, imagine if they were reimbursing or paying for every little thing, your washer goes out or whatever, things like that. So I really think it's time to, I agree with him 100% that we need to stop worrying about the the small dollars in primary care because primary care really should be, I think, the bedrock of the healthcare system. And it does not have to be crazy expensive and it doesn't require a million intermediaries. It just really requires a doctor and a patient and getting doctors getting paid a fair price that they can live on 
and less headaches and aggravation so that you can actually do your work and go home and not spend three hours on a computer. And there's a reason why doctors don't want to go into primary care. Not only doctors, you know, non-physician practitioners increasingly are not choosing primary care either. They're supposed to, you know, fill the gap, we're told. But there's a reason why nobody wants to do this kind of work. And it's a shame because this work is important. It's valuable. Personally, I love it when I'm not dealing with headaches of insurance companies and prior authorizations. When I'm sitting with a patient and helping them get blood pressure or diabetes or anxiety under control, you know, I feel really great. I feel like it's making a big difference in that person's life. And I know that there are millions of or thousands, at least, of aspiring medical students that would love to choose primary care, but they see what it looks like in a primary care office and they say, oh, my God, why, why would I want to do that? But when they come to a practice like mine, then they say, wow, that actually looks really good. This is like an old time doctor's office. This is what I want. So I really think that this is the answer for fixing our broken healthcare system that has underprioritized um, healthcare and especially primary care for way too long. I think you're right. It's just become this behemoth of administrative tasks that we have to do in medicine and not just primary care, but I mean, specialists, hospitalists, whatever. You have to jump through so many hoops to get your bill accepted. And did you put in the right bill? And are you overbilling? Are you underbilling? Did you check all the boxes to get the colonoscopy and the mammogram, whatever, instead of just taking care of patients? And that's why we all went into this. And I think what I like also is I like knowing how much things cost. And I will tell you that before I had this job, I didn't really know what things cost because it's very, it's not very transparent, right? You really have no idea what the doctor's bill is going to be until you're checking out or what the lab bill is going to be until you get a bill in the mail. And what I love is I know everything. I'll tell people, this is how much the medicine's going to cost. This is how much the labs are going to cost. This is how much um, we have gotten the colonoscopy price for you down at our a GI doctor colleague's office so that people can save and put their money together. I'll just use a colonoscopy as an example. I always start with stool card testing as my screening for most patients because it's $15 and it's good quality to just start. But if they have a positive card or they have had blood in their stool and they need to have a colonoscopy, then they can get that through one of our colleagues for $900. Now, $900 is a lot of money, especially if a person's living paycheck to paycheck, but it's not outside of the realm of possibilities. We're not talking about $90,000, you know, so $900. And if someone knows that they can, and they know why they should do it, why it's important, and they can put together $900. And it's also important because they take control of their health. They know I need to do this for myself. And but just make just knowing how much it is so that people can know so that they can budget so that they can plan. That's just a piece of healthcare that's been missing for so long. And I think more doctors need to know what things are going to cost. Of course, it's hard for us to even know. But then one of the beauties of, of getting rid of third party payers is when you're paying the bill or the patient's paying the bill, you can actually find out, well, how much is this going to cost me ahead of time before I go in for it? I love it. So what about like some of the administrative stuff? Is there an electronic medical record that you use or do you keep paper charts? What have you found there? Um, I'm on a computer. I use a special um, program that was created for direct primary care. The one I use is called Atlas MD and I very much love it. It's just $300 a month and an additional charge to use electronic prescribing, but it's not much more than that. It's sort of like, a, a, I don't want to call it a fancy word processor because it's much more than that, but I can type my notes or dictate my notes, or now I'm using some AI for my notes. 
It does my billing. It does my inventory management. It does my prescribing. Pretty much everything is self-contained with this within this one system. And there are other systems that people use for DPC that also do similar things. But you don't need a huge number of bells and whistles because you're not submitting bills to third parties. So you can do it a lot cheaper. And then with your documentation, you don't need to write a book because you're not submitting, you know, bullet points to, you know, did you click enough bullet points to get this level of service? Instead, you're just putting in the note what you need to be in the note for yourself or for other clinicians for, you know, legal reasons. So my notes tend to be a lot shorter than they ever were. And, and that comes in handy because we all hate documentation. And even though my notes are short, it's still not something that I love doing. That, but just being direct care just makes that so much easier and quicker to do documentation. I love it. Is there anything that you can think of that I haven't asked you that someone who's looking into this should know? Well, there's so much, but again, it is doable. I think that people need to realize again, this isn't rocket science. You are smart enough, you are good enough, you are resilient enough. Even if you're not a quote business person, because I always thought, well, what do I know about business? Trust me, you can do this if you did medical school. There are a lot of resources available online. I recommend there's the DPC Alliance, which is an organization that you can join that has a lot of resources. The company, the EHR that I use called Atlas MD, they have a free DPC curriculum on their website. So if you just Google Atlas MD, curriculum that basically goes through so many different things that you might want to know before you start. There are several books out. Doug Ferrego has a great book, The Official Guide to Starting Your Own DPC Practice. There is a book called Startup DPC by Paul Thomas. There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of resources online. Most people are happy to give you free advice. My website has a PowerPoint that I shared with you that people can check out if they're interested. You know, don't be afraid. Just give it a try. I mean, what do you have to lose? I, I just encourage everybody to look into it and take back control for yourself as a physician. Love it. Is there some kind of network, like you mentioned, you know, a GI practice and a surgery practice? Is there some kind of network between the DPC docs to be able to access these different things locally or um, nationwide? I do know that there there is a direct specialty alliance. I'd have to look up the name of it, but there is also an alliance for specialists. There's also a place to to find other doctors in your area. If you go to dpcfrontier.com, there's a mapper that you can find that has DPC practices and direct care practices. And also the DPC alliance has also a, a listing, a directory where you might be able to find someone in your community. So I think it's always right to start in your community, see who's already doing that, doing a practice, you know, just call them up. People call me all the time and I want to learn about opening a practice. And most of us are, I would say almost all of us are extremely willing to share information and tell you how we started. And, you know, maybe you'll find even a direct care doctor that's looking to bring on an associate if you don't want to open your own practice. I know a lot of my colleagues are looking to bring doctors into their group to expand. You know, just start in your area and feel free to reach out to anyone you know that's doing this model. Most, I mean, almost all of us are more than happy to share what we know and, you know, give you insights and ideas for where to go next. I know you have this special interest in physician wellness and taking back medicine. Anything you want to say on either of those things today? And maybe I can have you back and actually have a whole conversation about those topics too, because it's such a wide, both are wide topics. 
I'd love to, you know, when you ask physicians why they're burned out, one of the, there's a couple of main reasons. One, too many bureaucratic tasks, too many administrative responsibilities, and feeling like just a cog in the wheel. Those are like some of the top ones. Well, direct care gets rid of all of those pretty much. So I think uh, we spend as doctors a lot of time kind of bemoaning the system that we're in, or we may be working our butts off within the system. I know I did for many years. I sat on the EHR committee task force, and I was on this committee and that committee and, you know, trying to make it better from the inside. And I applaud people that do that. And I, I somebody's got to do it. And thank you. But at a certain point, kind of like I remember for me, the day I decided to leave my for-profit hospital job, I had sat on all these committees and I'd worked so hard to try to make the system better. And then my company got bought by a larger company and it was doctor's day. And they had given us a, a nice hot breakfast. And they, on that day, said to us, oh, and by the way, uh, we have been bought by this larger group and we'll be changing electronic health records and there will be no data migration. We'll just ask you doctors to just just transition that information from your patient charts into the new system. And we were all sort of stunned. And there were all these hands going up saying like, but wait, what? And I remember the new administrators, they just looked at us. They were so confused. And once finally said, I don't understand why you guys are all getting so upset. We gave you a free breakfast. <laughs> and I just, I left that meeting. I called my friend that worked there too. And I said, Kelly, I'm done. I'm out. I'm going to leave. I'm going to find another job. I'm not dealing with this. Just the attitude, the condescension, the like, you doctors, you know, and I just realized, you know, I spent all that time working, trying to fix the system to be told, you know, what's the big deal? And so that was an epiphanal moment for me that I just decided I'm not doing this anymore. So I say work within the system. If the system is working for you, if you can make it think you can make a difference, if it feels good to you. but if you get to that point, or if you don't want to do that, please know that there is another way. There is another option. You can do it. You can be successful. You don't have to work for anyone. You can work for yourself. So that's always my messaging is. And the other thing is, there's always another way. So I, when people feel, and I've been this way too, where you just feel hopeless and you feel trapped and you feel like I've spent all this time and this money and this is all there is. You kind of get in this really negative headspace. And, and I worry a lot about because we know from psychology that that's when people start to turn to really dark thoughts, when they start thinking like I'm trapped and there's no way out. I want to tell you there is a way out. There's always another way. It might not be occurring to you at the moment because you're in a dark place. So if you're feeling like that, you know, talk to your friends, talk to your colleagues, find a good psychologist or psychiatrist, you know, get some help because there is another way. There's always a way out. There's always an answer. You're not trapped. You're not hopeless. You're an amazing individual to look at where you've gotten. So don't give up. There's always something more that you can do. You can be okay. I love it. Well, I'm going to point everybody back to your website. It's Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H, Bernard, B-E-R-N-A-R-D.com. So if you want to learn about DPC, if you want to see more about physician wellness, you can go there. And thank you again for coming on the show today, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking with you. And I hope you'll all tune in again next week for Grand Rounds. Are you curious about locum tenens and how it might fit into your career? At locumstory.com, you can hear firsthand stories about the different reasons physicians choose locums and how it works for them. 
Visit locumsstory.com to learn more.